Jason reminded me of a conversation I had a number of years ago when I was just starting out in ministry. Um, I made a comment to a man who was mentoring me. I think I was a youth pastor, and he was a senior pastor. And I said, the grass isn't greener on the other side. He said, no, it actually is, but it's overrun with manure. And there's a reason. There's a reason the grass sometimes is greener on the other side, and you can put two and two together. So that doesn't mean you should go there just because the grass is greener, but it is greener sometimes. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Uh, Acts 8, 1 through 25, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack and make your way to page 916. I'd encourage you to turn there, and and while you're turning there, let me uh, ask you to pray for Ethan and me and my son Cademan, and just a little over a week, we'll be traveling to Cuba to work with Ama Cuba. This will be my fourth trip, Ethan's first trip, my son Cademan's first trip, but we need your prayer, so please pray for us. Jason likes to say that I plan my travels to avoid preaching the hard sermons, right? That, that I conveniently schedule him or I schedule weeks that I'm going to be out whenever a really difficult passage is coming up. But today is going to prove otherwise. In fact, when I'm gone to Cuba in two Sundays, uh, Jason will get to preach on the conversion of Saul, and I'm quite jealous about that. It's a passage that I've been looking forward to for nearly a year as, as uh, I planned the book of Acts, and it just didn't fall that way. I, on the other hand, am going to preach a passage this morning that New Testament scholar Howard Marshall says is perhaps the most extraordinary and difficult passage in Acts. <laughs> How's that for a teaser? So let's pray first. Uh, Let's pray for open eyes and unstopped ears and receptive hearts, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us the clarity that we desperately need, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word remains forever, your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and you've given your Word for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that, that we might be equipped for the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. And so the word that we're going to look at this morning, your word from Acts, is good. It is your word. And even when it presents us with challenging challenging sections, it is still good. And so help us to to receive it, um, help us to live in light of it, and ultimately help us to see Jesus in it. In Christ's name, amen. Acts 8, uh, 1 through 25. This is God's holy word. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's execution that uh, happened in the verses just prior. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. May God write his word upon our heart. Uh, the reason that Howard Marshall said that this is perhaps the most extraordinary and difficult passage in Acts is because there, there are a couple of difficult issues that can somewhat obscure the main message. And, and so the outline today is, is a little bit different, but stick with me because I believe that by the end uh, the main message will be clear. And, and I want to address the elephant in the room, these two difficult issues. And the first issue comes from this character, Simon. And so here's the scene. Uh, this man, Simon, was a well-known sorcerer. Uh, he was well-known throughout Samaria for having incredible power and performing amazing miracles, and he wasn't your typical con man doing parlor tricks. Uh, we're told in verse 10 that, that all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, uh, and that means that, that uneducated common folk, as well as the educated elite, they were all equally amazed by his magic. They were so amazed by this individual that they called him, and this doesn't really come out very well in, in English, but they called him the great power, which was a Samaritan designation for supreme deity. In other words, many in this area believed that Simon was a Samaritan god, and that's where he got his power. And as the legend of Simon the sorcerer continued to grow, along came Philip performing miracles from God. And we're told in verse 7 that, that Philip performed some amazing miracles. He, he performed some exorcisms. Uh, he healed many, including many who were paralyzed. Uh, and word of his miracles and message began to spread. And as word spread, it spread to this individual Simon. And Simon wanted in on the action so we're told that Simon believed, was baptized, and began to follow Philip. And a bit later, Peter and John came down from Samaria. 
because they had heard of they had heard of this uh, this uh, revival that was happening or this uh, this these conversions. And so they came from Samaria and they prayed over the new believers and they laid their hands on them and parted to them the Holy Spirit. And at this point, Simon asked, "All right, fellas, what's it going to take? Name your price." What's it going to take for me to have the sort of power that you have? What's it going to cost me for me to have the true power of God? You see, being called a God was not enough for Simon. He wanted to be God, and he wanted to have the power of God. And so we see that he was rebuked. He was put in this place. Peter said, may your silver perish with you. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. And that statement about his heart gets us to the heart of this difficult issue. The question that we're faced with is, was Simon truly a believer? Verse uh, 13 tells us that he believed, was baptized, and then followed Philip. But later, near the end of the passage, uh, he's rebuked. He has no part in the things of God. His heart is not right with God. Repent now of this wickedness. The text says that he was baptized and that he believed, but the question that we have to wrestle with was, was he genuinely saved? In, in John 2, interesting little uh, account. In John 2, we're told that Jesus didn't put a lot of stock in the sort of faith that rests on miracles. Uh, that people believed in the power of miracles, but that's different from believing in Christ. Believing in a miracle is different than believing in the God-man. Believing in a miracle is different than believing in a message. So I, I, I tend to agree with John Calvin on this one. It's always good to side with him if you're at a loss. Uh, Calvin reminds us that the apostles didn't lay their hands on Simon. They didn't impart to him the Holy Spirit because although he believed in the miracles he saw and professed a kind of faith, it was not true saving faith. And throughout history, if you, if you begin to read um, commentaries and uh, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and others, throughout history it's been widely held that Simon was not a true believer, that he actually became the father of the Gnostic heresy. That this Simon here, Simon Magus, uh, became the father of Gnosticism. Irenaeus, in his work Against Heresies, uh, tells us that Simon was the source of the Gnosticism that Paul addressed in 1 Timothy 6.20. One of the last verses there in 1 Timothy talks about this sort of knowledge that people crave that is, that is not truly of God. And we're told later on that Simon became the leader of a group called the Simonians. He was an almost cult-like leader. F.F. F. Bruce writes, Simon Magus plays an extraordinary role in early Christian literature. And he became a case study for what it looks like to profess faith but not possess faith. Simon was baptized with water, but he was not baptized with the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power of God, but he never possessed the presence of God. And this is a difficult issue to interpret, but it actually is important for us because it helps us to make sense of what we see so often in the church. There are many who profess faith. There are many who are baptized. There are many who, from outward appearances, follow Jesus, but their heart's not right with God. I mean, that was my testimony. I, 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 in my little church, 
during an altar call, came forward, professed faith, was, was baptized a couple weeks later, and, and for eight years would give all outward. I mean, I came to church, I went to Sunday school, I professed faith, but I didn't possess faith. Yes, I believe there was a God. I believed the Bible was basically true, but I hadn't put faith in Christ. I didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand that in order to make sense of a passage like this. What do you do with someone who, who professes faith, who says they believe, who may even believe in parts? They're baptized and from all outward appearances follow the Lord, but later we're told their heart is not right with God. Some have a kind of faith, a faith that acknowledges God's power, but it's not true saving faith in the person of Jesus. Uh, I was thinking this past week, do you recall evangelism explosion? It was a really popular tool um, in the 80s and 90s, um, and it was developed by uh, the late D. James Kennedy, uh, Coral Ridge Church there in Fort Lauderdale. Interesting thing that, that, that Kennedy tells about that is he developed this evangelistic program or this, this tool for sharing the gospel, and he didn't develop it for his members to go outside the church and share the gospel with their neighbors or co-workers or family members. He developed it because he was convinced that in his congregation of 4,000, there were people sitting in the pew who had professed faith, were baptized, and were members of the church, but they didn't truly believe in Jesus. And so he developed evangelism explosion as a way of evangelizing his own church members. And so we have to understand uh, with this individual, Simon, it's one thing to profess faith. It's an entirely different thing to possess faith. It's one thing to believe in the miracles that Jesus does. It's a different thing to believe in Jesus. The second difficult issue, and, and I'm sure you saw it, is, is the giving of the Holy Spirit by Peter and John. Now, why is that difficult? Well, because it appears, and it, it beyond appearances it happened, that many Samaritans believed in Jesus, truly believed they were baptized uh, with water, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until sometime later. But I spent a whole sermon on this, right, about six weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit is given to us at conversion, that when we are converted, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit by faith alone. And so we have to do something with this, right? We can't just sort of pass, I wanted to pass over it, skip it. Can't do that. Interestingly, two, uh, two very different groups, different groups on the opposite end of the ecclesiastical spectrum, have used this passage as proof text to defend their wayward doctrines. Uh, Roman Catholics use these verses to defend their doctrine of infused grace, that baptism uh, imparts, uh, confers uh, regenerative, saving grace, but at confirmation later the Holy Spirit is given. Of course, Charismatics and Pentecostals use these verses to defend that. That conversion truly happens when you, when you believe, but that you're baptized with the Spirit later on. And, and both groups who really have nothing, hardly anything in common, both appeal to this same passage for what they both call two-stage initiation. And so what was going on here? Remember what Jesus promised in Acts 1.8? In Acts 1-8, just before Jesus leaves them and ascends to the Father, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where else? In Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised the gospel would extend to the ends of the earth, and when he promised that, it had to seem far-fetched. 
It, it had to seem almost unattainable. Imagine if you were hearing those words, could Samaritans really believe in a Jewish Messiah? Would Gentiles one day come to faith and be grafted in? Well, notice where the believers found themselves because of unforeseen obstacles. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God was fulfilling the Pentecost promise. God was fulfilling the promise of Pentecost, and here what we see is, is sort of a mini-Pentecost event. In the same way that Pentecost inaugurated God's work in Jerusalem when his work, as he promised, extended to Judea and Samaria, God gave them the Spirit as a sign of confirmation. Again, I, I, think, I think Calvin's right on this one. He says, The Samaritans had the spirit of adoption conferred on them already. This extraordinary grace, this grace, and manifestation of the Spirit was given as a culmination. So what we see here is, is now the gospel is beginning to extend further out, just as, just as Christ promised. The gospel is going forth. It's already overtaken Jerusalem, but because of persecution, now it's moving to Judea, Samaria, and someday Tulsa, right? Someday to the ends of the earth. But as the gospel makes that transition from Jew now to Gentile, God, God gives a mini Pentecost event, a sign of confirmation. And so we shouldn't take this event with Peter and John laying their hands and giving the Holy Spirit as normative or as a model for the way that God typically works. It was a special moment. It was an event that connected the gospel going from Jew to Gentile. In about a chapter and a half, we're going to see the first Gentile conversion, Cornelius the centurion. So what we have here is a shift, a shift as the gospel leaves Jerusalem, and it leaves primarily these Jewish converts, and it goes to folks like us. Okay. If you checked out on me for the last 15 minutes, I get it. I would too. I mean, Irenaeus and two-stage initiation are not everyone's cup of tea. I, I get that. But, but we, we, we had to address those two elephants in the room, those two difficult issues, so that we could clear them out of the way and get to the main message. So if you checked out on me, check back in. Because what I want to share now in this second thought is uh, really what I believe is the main message of this passage. There are two difficult issues, not insurmountable, not, uh, we're able to understand them if we do some hard work. There are two difficult issues, but there are three easy, easy implications that Jesus wants us to see. Three incredible takeaways that God has revealed to us. And the first is this. The gospel is the free gift of God for anyone anyone who believes. The gospel is the free gift of God for anyone who believes. You cannot buy gospel freedom. You cannot buy God's forgiveness. You cannot buy the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. As Peter said, may your silver perish with you if you think that you can obtain the gift of God with money. Now listen, I suspect you know this. I suspect that you know that you don't have enough money because there isn't enough money to buy a right relationship with God. 
You know this. But what this also means is that you can't barter with God. Right? You can't buy gospel forgiveness. You can't buy a right relationship with God. You cannot buy forgiveness and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But you also can't barter with God on your good deeds. You know what bartering is? You know what it is, don't you? It's exchanging goods or services for other goods or services without using hard currency. And we look, at, we look at Simon Magus. That's how he's been known throughout history. We're astonished a little bit by his audacity. This is pretty, this is pretty audacious. To go to Peter and John and to say, what's it going to take, fellas? Name your price. Can I get a little bit of what you've got? To think that he could buy, actually buy, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? But how many times do we barter with God, exchanging our good behavior or our ministry service for what God has already given us for free? God, if, if you will give me this, if you will show up this way, if you'll manifest yourself to me in this way, if, if you will give me experientially what I so desperately long for, then I will do, I'll go to Cuba. Or I'll start coming to Sunday school. Or whatever it is, fill in the blank. Uh, very few of us would think that we could buy all that's offered here with actual money, but we always barter with God based upon our good deeds and our ministry service. God, if you do this, I'll do this. A little quid, quid pro quo action here. And we sang it a moment ago, and I hope you paid attention. The very first hymn we sang, Come Ye Sinners. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And even this he gives you. Right? You cannot buy the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot buy forgiveness. You cannot buy a right heart, as Peter says. Your heart's not right with God. And so the first thing that is, is, is glaring is that the gospel is free. It's free. It's free for anyone who believes. Second, your trials are meant as a gift to magnify Jesus and make him known. Your trials are meant as a gift. They have been custom fit for you so that you can magnify and make Jesus known. Did you catch those three little words in, in verse 1? And, and the, uh, the disciples were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. And notice what happens in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It wasn't the apostles who took the gospel to Judea and Samaria. It was the persecuted parishioners. Gospel seeds were planted because God's people were scattered. Proclamation came because of persecution. So why does God ordain persecution and trials and unforeseen obstacles? He ordains them as a gift so that we can magnify Jesus and make him known. He used trials and persecution and these unforeseen obstacles to fulfill the promise that he made in Acts 1-8, that his gospel would go forth 
to Judea and Samaria. And if we expand this out just a little bit, it's not just religious persecution that God uses, it's any trial and every trial that God custom makes and fits for us. So you may not believe that you have anything to offer. You may not believe that God can use you. But what trial has he fitted for you so that you can magnify and make him known? In, uh, in 2012, Jason and Kara Tippetts uh, planted a little church in Colorado Springs, a little PCA congregation. And, and they, they came there eager to start this new church. And uh, soon after, Kara began to write a blog. Uh, she called it Mundane Faithfulness. And she said in one of the early blog entries that it was, a, it was a simple mommy blog. That she was sharing what she was learning about life, love, parenting, and being a pastor's wife. But then in that very first year, the very first year of moving to a new place and planning this new church, Kara was diagnosed with breast cancer. And her, her simple mommy blog became a place where she began to share her joys and sorrows and, and how God was working in her life through the trials of cancer. And, and in a short time, her blog went from having a few hundred readers to having up to 20,000 views per day. During her illness, uh, she wrote a couple of books. One posthumously uh, was published by her, or published in her name. But during her illness, she wrote a book titled, Just Show Up, The Dance of Walking Through Suffering Together. Just show up. And so three years after her diagnosis, she died when she was 38. And she left behind Jason and their four kids. And her funeral service was watched online by 20,000 people from all over the world. And before she died, she said, I've won my battle with cancer because I get to go home to see Jesus. Through that trial with cancer, Kara's reach was far greater than it likely ever would have been without it. I mean, mommy blogs are a dime a dozen. 50-something new PCA church plants last year. What's, what's one in the grand scheme of things? Why, how is this one woman going to reach this massive audience through the trial that God custom fit for? She even uh, formed a relationship with Brittany Maynard. You may recall that name. Brittany was also a young woman who in her late 20s developed brain cancer. And, uh, and Kara died at 38, so uh, they were roughly the same age um, in the same stage of life. And uh, Brittany Maynard became, she, she made the news, she was on several shows. Uh, you may recall her name because she was one of the leading advocates for physician-assisted suicide in, in uh, Western states. And Kara reached out to her because they shared a common trial, they shared cancer. She began to share with Brittany about what God was doing in her life through this trial that they shared. I think there's something else that we can actually learn from that. Too often we, as Christians, I think vilify those with whom we disagree on, on significant issues, um, issues of life, whether it's in the womb or in a coma or in a nursing home and people whom we disagree with, we, we vilify them. Uh, Kara actually befriended this one with whom she had major disagreements on issues of life and what it means to be made in the image of God. And she found a common place in their trials. And so whether it's religious persecution that scatters the saints or whether it's ca a cancer that ravages the body, trials are a gift from God 
so that we, through them, might magnify Jesus and make him known. Third, here's a third takeaway. It just jumps off the page. Either you can try to be great, or you can acknowledge that Jesus is great, but you can't have it both ways. There's this remarkable contrast between verse 4 and verse 9. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ. Simon went around the city of Samaria and proclaimed himself, saying that he himself, quote, was somebody great. Philip said, look to Jesus. Simon said, look at me. And so that's where I based the title of the sermon. We, we can't play Simon Says. You know, I love the quote from James Denny. James Denny in the uh, 18th or 19th century, 1800s, was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. And he said, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. We can't give these simultaneous impressions that we have something to offer and also that Jesus is a mighty Savior. Can't have it both ways. Either we can, can long to be great and make something of ourselves or we can make much of Jesus. So do you long to do great things for God? Then make much of Jesus. You know, I'm reminded of the opening chapter of John's Gospel, the opening three chapters of John's Gospel. The, the Jewish religious leaders came to John the Baptist and they asked, who are you? Surely you're a somebody. And John said, I'm not the Christ. I, I'm not the Christ. And then a chapter and a half later, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. And I regularly have to tell myself that. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the answer. He must increase and I must decrease. Or, or to quote the Williams brothers, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody, right? But if you think that you have something to offer, then you won't be able to offer Jesus. If you, if you want to be known as great, then people, they might see your greatness, but they won't see past that to Jesus. And so this morning, if you're an anybody, because the gospel's free, and one of the things we see is it, as it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria is it goes to more and more sketchy people. Right? That's, if you stick with us through the series in Acts, you're going to see that it goes to the ne'er-do-wells. It goes to the people on the margins. It goes to guys like we saw at the beginning, Saul, ravaging the church, which we'll see in two chapters, breathing murderous threats. It goes to those kind of folks. It goes to Cornelius, a centurion. It's even offered to Simon the sorcerer, if only he would have believed. The gospel is free for anybody. And so if you're in anybody that's been saved, then you're welcome to this table. You don't have to have it all figured out. Right? You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know all of the answers as long as you know that Jesus is the answer and your faith is in him. You don't have to be a member of Christ Presbyterian Church, but if you're a member of Christ's body, then you're welcome to this table. Let's pray towards that end. Father, thank you for this, uh, 
this passage, which reminds us that, that we don't have anything to offer you, but you've offered us everything. That we don't have wealth or money or even the gifts inherent to do great things for you. But you've given your son for free. It cost him everything so that it might cost us nothing. And Lord, I, I pray that that would be a comfort to us, particularly as we endure trials, whether it's, whether it's something relatively minor or something life-changing and major. I lift up, Lord, Marcy and the Ellis family through this trial of the death of her mother. Lift up Amy Rice through the death of her mother, Janet. These, these are, these are life-altering trials, but they're momentary trials, but God has fit them for us, fit them for them, that Jesus might be seen as great. And I pray that would be uh, not a platitude, but a real comfort. And Lord, whatever it is for us that's on the horizon, if, if we find ourselves scattered, or if we find ourselves like Kara Tippett's um, early in life with, with um, the world awaiting us, and yet a cancer diagnosis, or whatever it is, that we would see the glory of Christ manifested in the gospel, given to us by grace because of what Christ has done. And so help us to view those trials in light of that. And help us to be strengthened now as we come to the table that, that we're not offering you anything, but you've offered us and given us your body and blood for our salvation and strength. And so do this work for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.